Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome everybody to another episode of One Step Beyond, a podcast show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. With me, your host, Tony Fletcher. In my other world, I, my other life, my default life, I do a lot of writing about music, a lot of work in music. Um, indeed, the uh, theme music you're hearing on this current um, episode is a new single by my uh, occasional band, The Dear Boys. It's called The Word That Doesn't Rhyme. And yes, there are lyrics and you can hear them when you hear the whole song. So doing a show once a month, like I do with One Step Beyond, is plenty for me. This show is more about my personal lifestyle, my hobbies, my interests, my kind of uh, hope and uh, you know, intent, vague intent, just to do my tiny, squeaky little bit to make the world a better place by having positive conversations and hopefully sending out good vibes into the world. Um, also keeping me busy at the moment, and it's relevant to the show that follows, is the fact that I'm taking college courses to get my degree uh, many, many years after I left school at a young age, but not an atypically young age um, in the UK. Uh, gosh, many decades back. You don't want to know how far back, but I'm enjoying my college courses overall, though they're hard work. And I'm especially been enjoying the couple of courses I've taken in cultural anthropology, the second of which, and which I'm in the midst of, like halfway through right now, should probably be working on it at this minute, is entitled Travel and Tourism, A Critical Perspective. And it's pushing all my buttons. I'm loving it. I'm finding that my years of doing this show is helping inform my college work. And the college work is helping inform particularly this episode. In fact, it probably led me to want to do this particular episode with Andrew and with Nathan, who are going to introduce themselves in just a minute. But hopefully you saw the podcast title. You know it's called Why We Travel. And as I've been doing on my other podcast, the Fan Team Podcast, I decided to put two people together so we could have a three-way conversation and um, one way of like doubling up my guests and hopefully keeping the conversation moving along nicely which we which we genuinely did um travel and tourism a critical perspective as you can imagine it's looking at um th those two words um they're interchangeable to some degree they are fought over to another degree we're going to jump right into that with the interview that follows but uh, truth is we can do a lot of damage to the planet by um traveling around it. Uh, truth is that even ecotourism causes a lot of damage to the environment and to the cultures that it's, in, it's well intended to actually preserve. Um, the likes of cruise ships are really, really damaging. Flying is not uh, great for the environment. But as we discuss on this show, often staying home is not great for the environment either. And the benefits of travel, and I'm giving this away here, but you know what? I want you to be, <laughs> I want you to know that we've, we're coming from a really positive place. And I 
I think all three of us here believe that the benefits of travel are so important that uh, while we're all going to keep a very close eye on how we interact with the environment, and we all should, um, it should not stop us from seeing this beautiful, beautiful world out there and mixing with the wonderful people that live on it. I was fortunate enough to be invited on a show called The Wanderlusting Wives recently, which, of course, is a travel show hosted by two young women, as you might expect. And they're very open-hearted, open-minded, got a great attitude. They're just happy to have people tell their travel stories. I told mine. They gave it the title, Trekking in Nepal and Curry Pizza in India. And, yeah, that whet my appetite for further journeys as well. That show only just got uploaded, published, uh, right a day or two before I was going to be uh, publishing this one. So that's uh, good timing, and I'm grateful uh, that they would want to have me on. So listen to that as well, if you get the chance. Um, as regards the interview that follows, I originally recorded an introduction with my guests, Andrew, and Nathan it didn't work so well. I wanted to do this one. So I'm going to just like get to the part where they each get to introduce themselves. And about a minute after that, I and some other preamble, I jumped in with the conversation. From there on, it's barely edited. Uh, I usually take myself out more than my guests because I'm the one who tends to ramble off track a little bit more. You should see me when I'm hiking. And it goes just over an hour, but I'm not sure that any of us are quite that obsessed. This is not a radio show that has to come in on time. And as long as the conversation is moving, I'm good with it if you are. Um, always great if you can support our guests by buying one of their books or at least even just popping online and telling them that you enjoyed the conversation. So look out for links um, in show notes. But to be honest, I would sooner send you to the Substack where there will be much more in terms of the show notes, um, much more conversation about travel, regular updates. You won't miss an episode. You know, you might get some other news that you're interested in, all of that good stuff. Um, I think that's it for now. Uh, enjoy the show. Thanks for being part of the journey. And let's go one step beyond. Oh, and first up to introduce himself, beaming in all the way from an only slightly rainy Manchester, England, is Dr. Andrew Stevenson. I'm a professional lecturer in psychology and an amateur traveller, I think, and I've got a recent book out called The Psychology of Travel, and hopefully we'll get to speak about uh, some of the issues surrounding that as we go along. Thank you. My name is Nathan Thomas. I'm beaming in from the very wintry city of Poznan, Poland, although I'm originally from New Zealand. I'm a travel author and editor. I've written two books on the subject of travel, Travel Your Way, which is about the the why and the motivations, and Untethered, which is more about the how. How can you keep traveling if you're a total travel addict uh, like me? That's wonderful. You, so your website is is great. Um, it's it is a website only, correct? It's not a magazine. It's a it's a it's an online uh, travel magazine. Would that be correct? That's correct. Yeah. So Intrepid Times, IntrepidTimes.com is a literary online travel magazine. We publish travel stories, narratives, creative nonfiction, not top 10 cocktail bars in Barcelona, but a strange thing that happened uh, in a faraway place. Maybe a good place to start off is I've, I think that we can get a little hung up um, trying to differentiate between travel and tourism. And I think it makes for a, a, a fun debate but at times a sort of um, a difficult debate and one in which one needs to take sometimes take sides um, there are various definitions uh, I'm going to come at this and I'm just maybe going to ask you your own opinions on this I'm going to come at this and say that 
Maybe, I, maybe one good way of looking at it is that tourism is a subset of travel. Um, but I'm interested in, in your own thoughts in, in terms of why, you know, I'm taking a course that's called travel and tourism as if they're two different things. But I think you write, is it, uh, Andrew, I think you have up front of your book that, um, you know, tour, uh, what, do you, what do you say? Do you say something like all tourism is travel, but not all travel is tourism? You, you, you're quite right to put, point out that distinction, aren't you? Yeah, well, I, I could throw a quote at you here, which I, uh, without rehearsing this conversation, mm-hmm. I did have at my fingertips from uh, the novelist Paul Bowles, who wrote The Shelter in the Sky, <laughs> later made into a film with John Malkovich in it. But he, he tries to unpick the difference between a traveller and a tourist. And he says, whereas the tourist generally hurries back home at the end of a few weeks or months, the traveller belongs no more to one place than to the next, moving slowly over periods of years from one part of the earth to another. To another. And so I think in some ways it's about um, the, the finality and the duration and the sort of speed at which you're moving. Uh, I think with a tourism's uh, more or less a commodity and you buy travel in a fixed period of time and you probably know how long it's going to last whereas i think uh, travel a traveler is doing something potentially a bit more open-ended and there may be a greater uh, aspect of wandering and meandering about it so but i, I agree with what you said at, at the start of this where you said um, uh, tourism is one aspect one type of travel isn't it but there are so many others yeah what do you think to that nathan i've i've read that paul bowles um story and i've got my own thoughts on it but uh you're you know you're deep into it you're uh you're off in poland a long long way from your original home so what's your what's your take on it yeah i think there's a lot in that in that quote i really appreciate that andrew i th- i was many years ago i was on a tour in Northern Territory, Australia, and the tour guide was showing us all these sugar ants. And he said, if you're a tourist, you're going to take photos. But if you're a traveler, you're going to eat one of the ants. So that's a, that's a good <laughs> definition as I've ever heard. I like it. I, I, I think I like I agree with what you said at the start, Tony, that that distinction is often a, a case of sort of competitive conversations in backpacker bars or youth hostels. But what the Paul Bowles quote, I think, gets to the heart of it, it's a matter not only of the, the structure and style of the travel, compared to a short trip from which you return home to a longer meandering journey. And also about intent. I mean, tourism, the intent is normally leisure or photos or bragging rights for its travel. You probably have more curiosity, more that you want to learn, more that you're willing to challenge yourself. One thing I think about that Paul Bowles quote that is, I was initially seizing on when I read that story, that book, um, is uh, I don't know that you have to be traveling for months to be a traveler, but um I think that if I go off to, you know, I went to Costa Rica this summer in, for 10 days and in 10 days kind of traveled the country. And I, I, I totally get we're going to talk a lot, I'm sure, about the sort of slow travel and something like you've done, you know, your second book, uh, Nathan, which is really about uh, people settling down for periods of time so they can work. But, um, but you know, that was a finite period of time I had to go there, but I was able to travel the country. And and by traveling independently, i.e. not on a tourist package, doing everything ourselves, I guess that made us travelers. And I think, Andrew, your distinction that, you know, tourism is something that's often bought as a package. Maybe that's a maybe that's a really key distinction of itself. I think we can 
push back on some of these categories uh, and between tourists and traveller, it's quite a nice uh, category to get you interested in the subject. But as you say, it's perfectly possible to spend a week somewhere and do some tourism for a few hours and then go off and do a bit of travelling the next day. You know, I think you can you can flip between these these different activities depending on what your choices of activities are, you know, and how you want to how you want to relate to the economy and how you want to whether you want to buy an experience or whether you want to act like a local or immerse yourself a bit more in the culture like an anthropologist would so i think there are different um we, we shouldn't just accept these categories you know uh, ready-made and we should try to question them a little bit uh, i mean another another psychologist has um given us some um like a more of a, a um a range of involvements that you enter into when you uh travel rather than sort of cat fixed categories so there are those people who travel within the bubble of tourism and probably the only people they ever meet are the travel reps who chaperone them around and maybe some of the locals who work in the hotels that they're staying in and then there are others at the other end of this scale who might see themselves more as voyagers, as you, to use your word, or explorers, who do their best to get out of that bubble when they travel, possibly learn a language at the same time, and maybe don't take part in any of these sort of official tourist activities, but just maybe go to the laundrette and or go to the local swimming pool. You know those types of things. So you know th th these categories are a bit, a bit messy, and I think we should celebrate that really. Yeah, is that the part in your book where you talk about? Is it like dependents and conservatives, yeah. and then so so the dependent is actually the most conservative. Then there's somebody who's kind of conservative, and what are the other two? As you move to in deep kind of true uh, independence, there's, there's the explorer, and then there's the the belonging seeker who may just uh, give it all up and decide to go and live there. Oh, what's no, a perfect, yeah. perfect segue to come over to uh, come over to Nathan here. Absolutely yes. perfect. And you know what? I thought this would be a good point. Um, I would like you to respond to that. But I also think this would be a good point to ask you both. Why should we travel? And uh, what are your own experiences with traveling? And for those, you know, this is an online, like I've got a Zoom call up. There's, there's, there's a bit of an age gap between, between the three of us, as far as I can tell, maybe not between myself and Andrew, but Nathan, it might be helpful to get your age roughly um, and a bit of your travel experience. Why should we travel? And this idea that, uh, of, of maybe uprooting and, and ending up with some belonging. Somewhere the worrying else. thing, the worrying thing here for me is that I'm probably a lot older than Nathan, but I think less travelled than him. But anyway, go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm in my thirties. Um, I've been travelling as much for all of my adult life. Um, you know, Paul Thoreau has that wonderful line where he never heard a train go by without wishing he was on it. For, for me, it was airplanes because <laughs> I grew up in New Zealand. We don't have a lot of trains, and everywhere is a flight away. Uh, so I don't know whether to that some extent that. Maybe you've done some research on this, Andrew, but that sort of wanderlust idea, whether it's innate, I've heard some online babble about maybe there's a genetic element, but I always knew that I had to and wanted to do that. Um, my first serious travel was in China. I, When I was a student in New Zealand in 2012, I spent a couple of weeks there and China in 2012 is very different than China now. And then I ended up mm -hmm. after I graduated in New Zealand, spending two years living first in Sichuan, uh, in Chengdu, and then in Shanghai. And then after that, I 
Spence moved over to Europe, started to get to know this city, Poznan, a bit. And this was kind of my on again, off again base over many years, living a uh, bit of time in Spain, bit of time in the country of Georgia and Albania, and quite a bit of time, uh, not that much time, but a little bit of time in um, South America, mostly Argentina as well. And during the quote unquote digital nomad thing for most of this, so three months here, three months there, although recently I've made Poland a bit more of a base. And in terms of why we do it, like I, I think there is the innate element or why we should do it. I also think that travel doesn't by magic make you smarter or more interesting or more knowledgeable, but but it can if you if you really work at it. I think that's great. And uh, Andrew, you you've studied this, and you're going to have your own mm. stories. Um, uh, but you you've literally looked into the psychology of travel. So why why should we travel? Yeah, and well, indeed, well, I mean, and indeed, sorry, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Why should we travel? And you said you may be less experienced than than Nathan, um, but please tell us your own travel experiences in the in the meantime as well. Thank you. A little bit about my traveling experiences. I suppose I've travelled for two sort of distinct reasons. Uh, I'm a really keen uh, cycle tourist, and uh, this is totally separate from my job. But I've done quite a few uh, long distance cycle tours. Um, around Malaysia and uh, across France and the islands such as Corsica and um, in Spain and so on, um, and, and in Britain, uh, Scotland, etc. So I love that idea. I, what I love about cycle touring uh, is the fact that when you try to cycle between two destinations, you've got to go to all the places in between. And uh, when you're a, I don't know if you're a tourist or even a backpacker, you can hop between the recommended spaces in between so i love i love cycle tourism for that and i love my bike and so it's a great way to see the world because you've got to carry everything with you that you're going to live with over the next few weeks uh, so that's one aspect of my travel experience uh, but i'm also um a bit like you tony I, i've got um, a background in anthropology and and i've got um, a long-term um research project in Guatemala. So I tend to visit Central America each year to um, build on previous research trips. So we do research into um, uh, resilience and education um, and educational psychology out there. So I'm a really keen student of ethnography and immersiveness. And I'm also uh, a keen Spanish student as well. So those are my two sort of main uh, experiences of travel. Since the pandemic, I've really started doing a lot more exploring in Britain. Uh, and I'm also conflicted by the issues of sustainability and so on. And so those are questions which we can all also talk about. But for me, travel, um, partly with my anthropologist hat on, is about finding out about different cultures. And um, I'm so interested in how we can become a sort of um, um, self-sufficient uh, in travel and the excitement and thrill of being in a, uh, a new place. I mean, it, you know, I don't think either of you need me to explain what's <laughs> exciting about travel, but um, yeah, so partly as an academic, but partly as a cyclist as well. <laughs> I think it's well worth saying, you know, yes, you're... Um 
a psychologist, you're, you're a culture anthropology, you're a professor, and your book um, is a sort of, you know, I say sort of scholarly book in that it's got all the citations that I have to do in my papers, etc. But it's a very, very approachable, pocket-sized um, you know, book. I'm glad you use the word. So I'm glad you use the phrase "sort of." There, that means a lot to me because I was desperately trying not to write an, another academic uh, academic uh, piece. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very readable. And there were a couple of times that you moved into more of the kind of pop writing that's been my my mm. background. And I think if you took out those citations at the end of almost every sentence, it would read not too far off. You know, Nathan's mm. books. Um, and Nathan's book. You know, we'll focus on the his first book first uh, of his two, but Travel Your Way. Uh, what I like about your book, Nathan, is that you're coming at this not as, a, as an academic and, and not you know, putting out an academic book, but yours is, ve- you know, it's a very pop book, but you have these, these like immersive exercises that make it a little like a fun textbook, like try this, try that. And you jump right in about um, expectations and phobias that we may have. Uh, and I'd welcome you to jump to, to really pick up on any point that you want. I was quite taken that you decided very early on to write about the so-called axis of evil and talk about those individual countries. You know, what's in a country? Why, why do we have fear of a country? Have you actually been to these countries? Do you know the people? What, what do you know about them? Do you want to pick that up a little bit? Yeah. So when I look back on on writing the book, and I was writing it quite soon after that I'd been on a on a long trip through Central Asia, and that had taken me through Iran. And Iran is a country that, growing up in a quote unquote Western world, Western place like New Zealand, is caricatured a lot in the media. And for your average person from my background, you wouldn't think of it much other than being just kind of a a scary, evil, ominous place. But of course, as everyone who's ever been to Iran will tell you, you're greeted with nothing but warmth and kindness and welcome around every corner from everyone you uh, encounter. So challenging that perception was sort of my way of saying to people, like, you're pre-held conceptions about the world may not be accurate. You won't know unless you get out and go there. But if you go to somewhere convinced that you already know everything there is to know about it, you're going to return exactly as you were before you set off. So let's begin, like first step as you're packing, unpack these preconceptions and, you know, just see where you end up. You might hate it, but you might not. Yeah, that's a good way of, of doing it. So I'll give I'll give you an example. You know, at a very young age, you went and braved China. And here's me, somebody who's done literally taken a kid around the world. I I um have I I'm, I'm wanting to choose my words. I would I'm not you know it would be funny for me to say this. I feel a little scared to do the travel that you did in China, and I can't explain why, because every other travel I've ever done has been great and I've you know I've got some kind of block that tells me I don't want to just go to Shanghai you know I'd like to be able to do in China what I've been able to do in other countries to some extent and some things got that very low on my my list of where I want to go um is that a reason to make put it higher (laughs) I think so you know in my earlier travels so when I I didn't mention this in the background but I took the to classic New Zealand Australia thing the quote-unquote gap year between high school and university and for that I did the 
backpacking thing around Europe. And even though I was mostly traveling in very well-trodden safe places, I was 17 for much of the time, 18 for much of it. And even taking a train from Paris to Grenoble in France, I was constantly in a state of fear. I'm going to miss my station. What if this happens? What if that happens? Where's my passport? And the reward on the other side of that is greater. So now, you know, you you do find yourself, I think, having to push it a little bit further, go to places beyond your expectation or do things a little bit differently because the the dark of the shadow, the bright of the light in some ways through that fear is that great excitement, that that fear, that uh, that feeling that Andrew alluded to earlier, that wonderful thrill of being in a in a new place. Can you give me an example of that? Because you've got examples in your book. What's What's one of the magical things that when you're not on a tourist package and uh, – we may get back to the fact there's not necessarily anything wrong with that at all. But when you're independent and you're willing to go through that wall, give me an example, and I'm sure you've got them as well, Andrew, from your cycling adventures of why it's worth pushing through this wall, the payoff. You get that sense of achievement that I don't think you would get on a tour. You get the sense of having solved something. So when I first moved to China, not, not to travel, but to live there in Chengdu and Sichuan, I was actually studying a Mandarin course at um, a university there. But I hadn't real, I hadn't kind of thought this through very well. Like all the great travel stories begin with people not thinking things through. And I'd arrived, first of all, not speaking any Mandarin, second of all, halfway through the semester. So not only had every other student studied it at university before in their home countries before coming there, but it was also in semester two. So I was completely clueless. And there was no English spoken around my university. You know, Chengdu has become quite a touristy town. It's got pandas and everything, but this was in the outskirts. This is 12, 15 years ago, um, 11 years ago. Anyway, it was a while back. And I had to, every little thing I had to figure out with trying to speak Chinese, trying to learn the word. So I remember getting a light bulb for my bedside lamp. And that was a huge process. I have to learn how to, not only what the word is, but how to pronounce it in an intelligible way, try and find a store that has them. And just that simple little mission of buying a light bulb, like that gave me such a thrill of satisfaction that an ordinary life just wouldn't provide. It's, yes, the small things. And Andrew, you your yeah, experiences? That's fascinating. I, I, can, I can give you a couple of um uh, experiences here. I mean, one of the things I realise that I love about travel is the sort of mundanity of it, and the the experience of ordinary tasks and chores, but in a, in an unfamiliar place. And uh, we were talking about buying a light bulb, but I can remember trying to go and trying to buy, trying to get hold of a brown paper bag in Mexico City, um, partly by way of learning some new words. But one of the uh, things I often do when I go traveling i'm a bit of an obsessive swimmer right uh, and uh, i go swimming nearly every day and uh, i don't really plan my trips abroad very much down to the uh, last detail but i do always try and find out where the local swimming pool is before i get there because i do i do start to panic a bit if i don't know where the nearest pool is going to be and i just love the mundane rhythms and uh and circuits of a local swimming pool. Uh, and I'm thinking about Reykjavik here, uh, just as one example, because a lot of people go to Reykjavik so they can go to the Blue Lagoon, which is a swimming, it's kind of a natural spring where you can go and experience the sort of warm water outside in the ice. And it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, attractive location for tourists 
but it doesn't really involve any swimming because it's more about just being in the lovely warm water. But then, also in Reykjavik, there are two or three um, lane swimming locations, just like ordinary swimming pools that we know, which the locals use. And I just think about those two different experiences of uh, swimming in Reykjavik. One is um, a tourist experience, and one is just the mundane, repetitive experience that most of the locals do every morning. And I love trying to hook up with those sort of um, things like going to the laundrette, you know, and uh, buying an envelope, uh, all of those types of um, things that you wouldn't really find in a guidebook. Uh, you know, come to Reykjavik, buy an envelope. You're not going to find that in, in a guidebook, but it's a great achievement sometimes, especially if you can do it in the local language, which I wouldn't be able to do in Iceland, I hasten to add. Um, yeah, that's, that's, those are really, really good examples. And um, I, I would say, from my experience, uh, you're a swimmer and a cyclist, Andrew. I, I'm a runner, yeah. and a lot of my best interactions when, uh, have come about through going on a run because you get straight off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, I've found myself, I, I, whether it's in literally in Tanzania where somebody, uh, somebody started running behind me or in India where a group of teenagers started running up a hill behind me, actually asking me, how do we run, which was, which was just fascinating <laughs> and bore, bore out what a recent host had said to us that the Indian people, the middle, he was referring to the middle class, have forgotten how to walk. Uh, they take taxis everywhere. That was, I, uh, yeah. and I got the most beautiful photograph of my trip with these Indian teenagers um, running through some of the poorest streets of Sandakan in, in Borneo and these kids falling into line with me and asking me if I like football. And uh, yeah. I think they asked me first where I was from. I said, England. They said, do you like football? And I responded, I'm English. And you know, <laughs> suddenly we're, we're, we're talking about, I'm running with these kids talking about football, a, a trip up in the the top of India where I must have been around the end of a run. The high, the high school kids were going off to school and somebody talked to me. He'd run the local marathon twice. He was 17. Um, the, all of those experiences couldn't come about if I just kept myself into a, in a certain t- travel yeah. or tourist bubble. Because traveling by foot, whether running or walking, can be quite um, a rebellious activity, uh, in a, especially on a trip where... Um, organizationally you really are meant to be ferried around in taxis or on um on pre-prepared transport and so i mean i've, I've sometimes been in places where people have said yeah we, we can get you a car to go here or you can you can get a taxi to go from a to b uh and and i said well i'm just going to walk and and as it uh, the look you know the look i would get it, it, as if i'd said something really uh, a, a real faux pas, you know. Um, so, but it, these are all cultural norms, aren't they? That we uh, we can transgress them. Uh, it's still interesting to do that, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's the mundane uh, habits that you can do in in different places, and even those can sometimes um, help you to immerse yourself into a culture. But it can also help you to discover what the local norms are. And you often find out that you are transgressing them somehow. It's all interesting. Nathan, you're talking about the travel bug and you were wondering whether Andrew has looked into this. I'm I'm curious as well. Um, there's something anecdotal in, in one of your two books, Nathan, that I'm going to pick up on in a second. But you know, human migration 
is historical. When we were traveling, I went to a lot of museums and I realized that, you know, countries' borders are completely fluid. They change over time, just like the, the continents move over periods of time. We're just a moment in time that's, that's you know, going to carry on after we're gone. Humans have moved historically across the planet. So to me, the idea of travel seems very, very normal. But have you looked into this, Andrew, about what makes people travel? Um, and we've talked, you've certainly talked about the different types of travelers, mm -hmm. but what makes us travel? And also, as the psychologist, was, is your conclusion that it does make us happy, that it does benefit us? Well, I'll try to make two or three succinct points on this. I mean, first of all, we should remember that there are probably the majority of the world's population don't travel. Uh, and uh, not many people from the US have passports uh, proportionally. But obviously, travel is a very popular pastime with quite a lot of people. Um, but some people travel uh, for education. Some people travel uh, reluctantly. Some people travel deliberately and those those people who travel deliberately may be looking for happiness and there is there are some theories around that there are kind of two types of again very um wary of these categories but they're quite handy sometimes uh, the, the sort of categories of happiness that we chase one is a kind of hedonistic travel where we go for uh, you know fun and sun drugs and all of those types of things and it's the sheer sort of physical uh, enjoyment that travel can give us, Think, thinking about things like uh, beach holidays and maybe skiing and those types of things. But then the other type of travel um, is sometimes known as eudaimonic travel, which is basically means travel for self-improvement. And this is a bit more of an open-ended kind of uh, pleasure or enjoyment. And this can involve things like traveling to enrich yourself or to learn a new skill or to learn how to cook Mexican food or learn a language or something like that. And again, being wary of the categories, we can do both of these things on a, a two or three week trip. So it's not necessarily that the world is divided into two types of travelers. What's um, the spelling yeah. of the oh, second oh, one of those? I think it's E U D. E M O N I C, but I've seen it spelt in different ways. You do my, not. My spell check doesn't like it, however you spell it. But it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely out there. But it's travel for self self improvement, really. Going to an art gallery, um, and you know, uh, learning about a culture. I mean, an anthropologist, I suppose, is the the classic eudaimonic demonic traveller, I suppose, um, who is travelling to find out and learn and enrich yeah there is one final thing about that is just that some researchers suggested that um uh they've done some research to find out how long the benefits of travel stay with you after you get back home and uh, one study found out that with uh, travel for self-improvement the benefits were a bit more longer lasting than the um the um hedonistic traveler who is more likely to have more of a hangover than a lo load of good memories after it so um yeah but you know you can take some of these some, some of these are quite sort of quick and easy research findings but it, it's quite it's quite interesting nathan thoughts and observations your own experiences yeah so in my first book travel your way i, I spoke a lot about bruce chatwin and obviously the well-known british travel writer and his 
first book that ultimately did not manifest, so his first attempted book, was a book on nomadism. It was the ultimate book on nomadism. And part of that was his own self-reflection as someone who felt restless after having been, like he described himself as having a very severe case, someone who felt restless after being at home for two or three weeks, just overwhelmed by the compulsion to go somewhere else. Where does that come from? What is the history of that? And Bruce Chatwin did not finish that book, but another British travel writer kind of did. That's Anthony Satin in his book, Nomads to Wanderers Who Shape Our World. And I had the privilege to speak to Anthony on uh, Intrepid Times about his book. And it's it's the ambition and scope of this book is huge. And it's, he traces civilization through two lenses. One, the quote-unquote settled people, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, who build the huge temples and and Parthenons and, and governments and armies. And the other, the nomads, the people who sweep through and they don't leave behind so many monuments, but they actually, as he said, shape our world. They propel development, change, and uh, cultural evolution. So seeing this nomadic bent, I don't know whether it's societal or innate but there is something there that has always there's always been people who've always traveled yeah you write in um it's one of your two books you will know which one whether it's uh, travel your way or untethered uh, based on some very limited uh it won't it wouldn't pass muster with uh with andrew's university i think you're a manchester metropolitan is that right andrew that's correct yes i yeah. should have mentioned that in my introduction i'm going to get told <laughs> off when i get back to it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i i don't think it would pass muster but your anecdotal uh survey uh nathan revealed that uh, a lot of people engaged in who, who like traveling uh came from from um, unsettled homes. Uh, we used to call them broken homes, divorced parents, etc. Um, I'm from a, a family where my parents divorced when I was younger, um, and both my brother and I ended up living in other countries. And, I mean, how extensive was was that? Because I think that's something sort of worth looking into. Um, my own experience has been that a lot of people who've engaged in long-term travel do so because they don't feel particularly rooted to the physical home that somebody with a very stable, residential, locally, community-based family might feel. Very interesting that you, you point that out. That's from my second book, Untethered. And because that's actually one of the things in the book that people raise to me the most often. I've had a lot of people. So this is still won't, won't pass uh, master with Andrews University, still very much anecdotal, but it is something that comes up over and over again. And it's not necessarily people who've had you know, horrific upbringing. Right. I had a very lovely suburban upbringing, but I didn't have that one particular family home to to go back to it's interesting though actually in tim hannigan's book the travel writing tribe he sees in some ways the opposite that a lot of the great explorers had this incredible sense of rootedness often you know this is the british aristocracy often it's the ancestral home that goes back 12 billion years or something the manor but they have that so i think there's there's some contrast here but it'd be fascinated for someone much smarter than me to actually research this and get to the, the bottom other, of the it. other thing is that you can see that as a, alongside this tradition of the the grand tour can't you uh the first uh sort of european um travelers who did this sort of european tour in the um what 19th century and a lot of those people were by definition quite privileged weren't they and so you not they're not necessarily we're not necessarily seeing the ability to travel as a consequence of some kind of um um social dysfunction you know what i mean so it, 
I think it's hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to generalise as, as to why different people travel. But we should just sort of reiterate that it's often those people who've basically got the opportunity and the means to do it as well are the ones who are able to do it. But as you point out, Nathan, as well, culturally speaking, there are also um, whole cultures of people who traditionally, whose people have travelled together, you know, like maybe with their cattle or maybe across uh, a continent as a seasonal thing. And so there are lots of sort of individual and cultural reasons why uh, why people travel. There are there are indeed. And I want to throw in some another purely anecdotal um, example because it might not just be about coming from unstable home families. Or, or actually, I, I want to correct that. My family was very stable. It was just like I didn't have two parents at home. That's all. And the... Uh, but my, I, I was down in, I've been to uh, Colombia twice in recent years and stayed at my uh, friend's art center that he set up the, the, the most recent time because he'd set it up about three hours outside of Bogota. He has a wonderful international community coming in uh, for residences from a wide variety of ages and countries. And I felt like I got really lucky. I just got the greatest group of people. And dinner time is communal. It's only about eight, eight of us. Uh, it's communal. It's that, that's really important. And one night we got to talking about like why we were why everybody was on this long-term journey i was not on a long-term journey but pretty much everybody else was and i think maybe f- five out of six of them uh it came, kind of came around they they broken up with somebody <laughs> and <laughs> and their response to a failed <clears throat> or the end of a very serious romance um was to to travel to put it behind them by literally getting the hell out of dodge i found that fascinating as well I mean, there's no doubt that travel's got a, a very profound social aspect to it. And what other people are doing definitely affects our travel choices, whether that's to do with uh, rom- from, to do with romantic relationships or whether it's just to do with where you decide to travel because what other people happen to be doing. And when we all know the experience of um, uh, TripAdvisor and the effect that that has now on people's travel choices, and that's a relatively new thing. And on a mundane level, our decisions to go to even into a restaurant or to a particular establishment are often based on how many other people are in there uh, and mm-hmm. whether we want to avoid people or whether we want to follow people. And people can even influence us in our travel decisions when they're not there, even by dint of their footsteps. even We can see their footprints and we know that people have been here before. So there are lots of reasons why... Uh, it's really hard to travel alone. Even if you think you're traveling alone, often your decisions are going to be influenced by where other people seem to be going or where are the crowds going or how can I get away from all these people? You know, So it's a, it's a very social thing. The lone traveler is a, a little bit of a, a myth, it, although obviously we can, we, there are plenty of people who, don't, who travel without their family or friends, but that's a slightly different thing. Yeah, because there's so many ways we can uh, interact these days and uh, the world is that much smaller than we realize and sort of more more, more commonalities. You know, there are two subject matters I really want to have us time to, to dive into. And Andrew, you gave me a, a very good segue for one of them. But I'm going to stay with the more... Um, the more uh, the one that you raised actually much earlier. I'm going to back into it. And rather than ask a question, I want to read something from Travel Your Way um, that comes at the end of a, of a longer paragraph and as part of a chapter that I, I found actually quite compelling, Nathan. And the section I'm going to read uh, says, if we travel, 
We increase our understanding of the world and can use that increased understanding, sensitivity, influence and network to lobby and effect real change on the level that matters. Then our impact can truly be positive and profound. Do you want to tell me about what precedes that, Nathan? It will give us a chance for what I think is a really necessary conversation about travel and tourism. Yeah, so that's the chapter where I, I take on the sort of environmental aspect of travel, and it's in the context of the quote-unquote flight shaming movement. And <laughs> this is a big thing uh, in continental Europe now, and um, obviously, like, totally big believer that we need to be sensitive and rational with our choices. But I also think the idea that travel being singled out as something that people should do less of but, or feel guilty about doing because of the environmental cost, it's A, a red herring, and B, not actually going to solve the problem. And that's what the passage that Tony read. So by traveling, we actually come directly in touch with the world around us. And as democratic citizens, as rational actors, we can do so, make better decisions, vote wiser, and learn more by traveling. And, and to the idea about the individualization of responsibility for what actually enormous corporations are doing beyond our control, is something of a red herring itself. I don't know how much we want to double click on that. I'm I'm willing to do so, but Andrew, you certainly mentioned a certain um, certain restraint post pandemic due to environmental mm. reasons, and I, I think it's a really important topic to, um, to 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 go over. What you and you and you do actually specifically reference flight shaming in your book as being a current concept. You say it originated in Sweden in around 2018. So that would fit in with Nathan saying it's part of the continental Europe's mindset. What What's your views? What do your studies tell you? And, um, you, you mm. know, what's your, what's your view on the sort of travel broadens the mind versus travel damages yeah. the planet argument? <laughs> well, on the, on, the, uh, on the issue of travel and social change, um, I'll just pick out one thing which, which I think is interesting is this idea of how uh, travel has been linked to changing people's attitudes in terms of um, uh, prejudice and racism, that kind of thing. So obviously when we travel, by definition, we meet lots of people from different cultures. And social psychologists have, have often found that um, uh, encountering people from lots of different cultural groups is a really good way of reducing prejudice against those groups, because obviously you're starting to meet people and it uh, it dispels a lot of the preconceptions you have. But because the tourism is the way that it is, there's a bit of a caveat with that uh, argument in that um, one of the problems with tourism is that we often meet people from other cultures in an um, in unequal circumstances. In other words, we meet people from local cultures and they are often the people who are serving us or cleaning up after us. And so that really doesn't help us to change our views about people from different cultures too much. However, when we when we meet people on equal on an equal footing or as equals, so for example, if we visit people's homes or if we visit people more as explorers than tourists, then the findings are that that does improve people's or reduce uh, prejudice. So I think I agree with what Nathan was inferring about the sort of positive, the potential positive um, social change that can go on from um, travel and tourism as well, depending on the status issue. Now, in terms of the uh, flight shaming thing, I mean, I was, I was using that in my book just to illustrate um, some of the one of the ways in which 
people have tried to change attitudes about travel and flight shaming obviously is quite a um, borderline, quite aggressive way of trying to get make people feel guilty, individuals feel guilty. And Nathan's definitely got a point about the fact that uh, often the blame for climate the climate emergencies is often levelled on individuals, whereas actually it's whole governments and corporations that are also responsible. But I also think at the same time that I have, um, my eyes have been opened a little bit to the the diversity of travel a bit closer to home. And my views about travel have changed a bit since the pandemic. And I no longer think that um, for travel to be interesting, it has to be a long way away. And that that's had some uh, influence on the way that I travel nowadays. And, and also, um, there are arguments about things like, um, why not go for uh, trips that are far away, but stay there a little bit longer, rather than making five or six shorter trips. And so that's just like a material effect that you can have on, on uh, frequency of flying. So as you can probably guess, my views about this are quite... Uh, quite complicated and they're, they're, they're not all in agreement with each other. So uh, if I can't agree with myself, it's going to be difficult to agree with anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Nathan, you, uh, you've ended up, you know, rooting yourself somewhere else. And we still, I still want to get to that part of the conversation. So it's not like you're hopping around on planes all the time. And um, as part of my current studies, I uh, took the UN carbon footprint test. I just took this last week and I was pretty meticulous. I got out my electricity bills. I got out my car service bills. And although it doesn't ask for specific flight details, it does uh, group them under like four hours, under six hours, under eight hours. And I took four flights this past year uh, to the UK and back, which I do every year, and to Costa Rica and back, which is not a long journey from from here. I was um, actually genuinely surprised because I know that flying is going to add a lot to my carbon footprint. And I I have an example from somebody else I interviewed for this show, Damien Hall, who wrote a book about we can't run away from this, about how runners are damaging the environment. We think we're doing this wonderful just running in nature. And it points out that the average French person who flies to New York City to compete in the marathon doubles their carbon footprint with just that journey, um, which is astonishing. But interestingly, my airplane flying was less than my car and I drive a Prius. I drive a hybrid and I don't think I drive that many miles. I think I put down for like 10,000 miles a year. And that actually knocked it back into perspective in terms of what my my flying was doing and in terms of how it was enriching me versus the mundanity of Mm -hmm. my daily driving. So Nathan, you've studied this statistically. You got a couple of things you want to tell us about it before we move on to your second book a bit? Yeah, I, I don't know if the, there, there are figures in my book, I don't have them in front of me, but I, I do think what you point out anecdotally, Tony, kind of gets to the core of the, the point that I was trying to make there, which I think is that often we are compelled to think almost forensically about our travels and to equate each discovery, each journey with with guilt, whereas we may not think so forensically about our daily lives, which actually might um within the the carbon footprint concept and you know which we we did discuss is itself a troublesome idea um can 
be a bit of a distraction. I also completely agree with what Andrew was saying about traveling closer to home or traveling slower, which are two things that I'm a huge believer in. So you can have these benefits to unlock the the potential benefits, as Andrew rightly said, to unlock the the extra insights, the challenges to your worldview that travel gives you without hopping on a flight every every 30 mm-hmm. seconds, for sure. Yeah, I think some of what you write is uh, that uh, flying um, accounts for only 2% of emissions globally compared with 8% for fashion, 25% for the food industry, which is really important and which is underrated. You also um, do make that very, very, very point that you know there's, a, there's an argument being made that if we weren't getting on planes, we'd be sort of cycling everywhere, eating vegan meals. Well, maybe some of us would, but, but in fact, we're going to the mall. We're being consumers. When we go abroad... We're more likely to cycle, eat frugally, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of this, ha- lot of this has to be weighed up on a cost benefit. And for me, the bigger argument, actually, because because um, I like literally, I kind of had this guilt about my flying last week, and then I read your chapter, and you're very strident about th- th- this being a red herring. And I actually think, and I, we don't have time to get into this um, on this conversation, but I think over-tourism is the bigger concern, and it, that's to do with the big, big, big development companies that buy up land, build a brand-new mega-chain hotel, and siphon yes. off the tourist money back yeah. to the head office. That's where the damage is being done. My uh, carbon emissions being like 3% above the average American, I don't see as being the cause of the planet's destruction of itself, even though I try on every front to be more frugal in my carbon footprint. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I I mean... We probably want to move on to some, to something else, but at the same time, it's important to to recognise that we're having this conversation. Maybe the thing is to uh, encourage more people just to think about these issues a little bit, and, and um, behaviour change has got to be a, a more widespread or uh, a more widespread um, phenomenon, really, hasn't it? It's about communicating this to with other people, having the conversation rather than feeling guilty as individuals. I think. Yeah. Well, well, well said with that. And I also would like to recommend that uh, there's a writer called Chafik Meji who lives in uh, London, a very good travel writer. I've had him on the show twice. He's done a lot of writing about um, tourism close to home, travel close to mm-hmm. home and the hidden beauties you can find in England that were right outside his door. So that's what something for people to listen to. Uh, Nathan, your, your second book, to give it its full title, Untethered, Living the Digital Nomad Life in an Uncertain World. Um, why do I have an instinct aversion to the phrase digital nomad? Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, yes. And as do I, um, but probably because <laughs> you uh, imagined some uh, unreasonably beautiful 22-year-old sitting on a laptop on a beach somewhere drinking Mai Tais and blogging or talking about Bitcoin or something, some sort of obnoxious performative version of travel that is far from anything that you, Andrew, or I have have aspired to or, or discussed today. And part of what I try and do in Untethered at the start is, is to bust that myth. You know, they're actually, they're not all 20-something techies. They're 55-year-old teachers or retirees or, or people of all, you know, uh, ages and and demographics. Right. And you would you are one of them. You are yourself, I guess, a digital nomad. 
Yes, have been to various degrees. Like uh, over the last couple of years was to quite an extreme level. So my entire worldly possessions uh, in a suitcase, going to a different country every few months uh, or at least a different city. Now, uh, as of this year, a lot more settled. Partly that was because my wife acquired far too many shoes to keep in one suitcase partly this is just the 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 next stage the the next chapter but yeah i definitely did it to the one had the dial set to 100 for a couple of years right andrew you write again you cover all these bases in your book in a very slim book which is pretty impressive how would you define a digital nomad and do do do, do you understand why some people might have a natural aversion to that phrase well, you know, recently I was in, uh, on the last time I went to Guatemala on a research trip, we stayed in uh, at some apartments and um, I've been a few times to this same place and I noticed this time there were three or four uh, individuals who I noticed were getting up in the morning and then just spending all their time on their laptop and then going out sort of in the evening for dinner and so on. And I think I, having ri- written about it already, I think I'd met some digital nomads for the first time and I found their lifestyle totally fascinating. And I kind of knew then what it looked like rather than just having read about it. I think this is a fascinating sort of deplacing of work, isn't it? So the a lot of the things that digital nomads do are again quite mundane because it's about going going to to work, but uh also being able to um trouble some of those boundaries between work and travel and leisure and um, work time. I think I find it a fascinating development and, and it's something that I'd really like, genuinely like to uh, read about and maybe do some research on in the future. I think it's fascinating. I only wrote three or four pages about it, but of all the things that I wrote in my book, I find it the thing that I would like to pick up and maybe run further with. I think I think it's absolutely fascinating. And Nathan's obviously the expert here. I think what gets me a little bit about the phrase is when I think of nomads, I think about the people that Andrew mentioned earlier. I think about the Maasai. You know, I think about the tribes mm. of the Sahara, people, people that don't have fixed homes that are moving, um, you know, just setting up. Uh, I, I think about pygmies, you know, that, that just move, set up camp, move, set up camp. And when you throw... So AI, I worry that we co-opt it by making it our expression when we actually have stable you know, homes. We've come from a place that allows us to get on a plane and go somewhere. And you throw the word digital in front of it and it makes it sound like you have this sort of first world privilege where you're living this, quote, nomadic existence, but not in terms of what a nomad used to be. And you're doing it while being completely connected to the world. I, I think for me, the concept is something that I would love to engage in um, in the not too distant future. But I would love to know, I would love us to have a better sort of expression for what it really is. Yeah. And first of all, Tony, thank you so much for your, your kind words on Travel Your Way. And I totally hear the kind of asterisk that is on that phrase, digital nomad, because it is juxtaposing two very different realities and yeah it's not the same as being a true nomad in the sense that anthony satin or bruce chatwin wrote about for sure it's an elective thing and it's a thing that many privileged people elect to do um it's not exclusively for folks from san francisco new zealand uh, the uk there are digital nomads from from all over the world and there is something quite 
um, egalitarian about that. I mean, anyone with a laptop, the Google that you have in Malaysia is the same Google that you have in San Francisco. You know, the skills are accessible. Um, but I, fundamentally, like Andrew, I think the lens of looking at it as an extension of the work from home concept is the right one. If you quote unquote untether your economic activity from a physical location, yes. then some of the things that are holding you in that place become a little bit looser. So then mm. I mean this scenario I don't think I don't think the story's played out anywhere near to the end. Because when we break this paradigm for certainly for a privileged class of laptop warriors, certainly not for everybody, but when we reduce the connection that most people have to one physical location. Mm. And these connections are a little bit more arbitrary than I think for many of us than people think. What does that world look like? Um, I think we might find out. Yeah, and and yeah, it's it's a, the, the 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 book Untethered is very good with the advice about how to make that work in different places while still being part of the communities that uh, you're engaged in. Obviously, anytime I bring a couple of people onto one show, we jump between topics. There's so so much we could have dived into. I mean, I would be happy to spend a whole episode just talking about the flying aspect and uh, you know whether that benefits. So I'd be happy to talk about about over tourism. I'd be happy to talk about uh, backpacking. And um, I think that what we're coming out with from all of this, though, is we've all got experiences that we feel are, uh, you were certainly right in one of your, your books, uh, Nathan, we have a very short time here on Earth and we need to like leave it feeling like we lived a life and uh, travel experiences generally give us a much more positive view of our lives. I th that's my take and i thought one nice way to end this we've we've had a pretty deep conversation and you know some some of them are uh, a, a bit more light i think this was really really important but i'd like to ask you what's your most either the most fascinating place you visit i never ask people their favorite i ask people the most fascinating or simply the most fascinating individual experience you had on your travels when i went to malaysia i um found it very hard to let go of being from England and I love Marmite and I took two jars of Marmite with me on this cycle trip across Malaysia and I think I got about a day and a half into the trip and I thought to myself what the hell am I doing these are both quite heavy I just need to uh, I just need to leave my identity uh, as a Brit and I just need to forget about Marmite and eat some of the local food. So I think I just left them at the side of the road and carried on pedalling. <laughs> it's great. Nathan? Someone's going to pick up those jars of Marmite and they have been for the shock of their lives. Andrew, <laughs> um, my, mine's similar also in Asia. It's the one that came to mind. I was in Myanmar, uh, somewhere in the hills near Mandalay, and you climb up to this beautiful viewpoint, and there are a bunch of monks in their traditional robes hanging out there. And I kind of shyly wanted to take a photo of the monks, but before I could ask for permission, they'd come up to me and ask to take a photo of me because I was just as strange and otherworldly to them as they were mm. to me. And I think that that says a lot when we mm. when we start out. Ah, uh, that's a that's a really 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 good one. Um, I'll throw in that I think the most fascinating individual city I've ever been to is Calcutta. <clears throat> um, 
<clears throat> somewhere that I want to go back to. In fact, we made it a hub of travel. Um, but there was a major, major, major piece just in, I think it was only yesterday's Washington Post about the heat in Calcutta and how it's affecting the poor there more than the wealthy, how there are temperature differences in within big cities between slums and what we call slums and other areas and how Calcutta is one of the cities heating up um, the fastest in the world due to climate change due to the climate crisis and I think it did sort of help remind me that um, that this is an issue that why we can all make our own footprints smaller and be more conscious about them there is a you know it's big industry we have to change the, the modes of travel the fuel of travel um, how we consume as societies because uh, you know my experience of going to Calcutta made me want to read that article. And maybe if I'd never been, I wouldn't have looked at that article and be thinking in more of a worldly view. So for all that involved travel to get there, you know, I, I would come away saying that my life is enriched by having uh, made Calcutta a bit of a hub for myself for a while. And that it gives me a better perspective on the really big issues affecting the planet. Again, we could talk forever. Your books, um, I, I, I'm going to put in links for certain in the... Um, in the show notes, I also want to invite people, remind people, if you come to tonyfletcher.substack.com, it's actually a better place for me to share this. I can put in pictures of the book covers. I can put in, if I want to, a couple of quotes from the interview. I can do much more, much, much better with links than trying to look at your phone and pick all this stuff up. So it's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Sign up is free for the, for, for, for the vast majority of it. And um, that's a much easier kind of click link than going to the various book pages but the books are um uh, andrew stevenson has written the psychology of travel it's part of a series called the psychology of everything it's a very readable uh it's quite a, well it's an academic book but it's very very readable nathan james thomas um has published two great books one is travel your way rediscover the world on your own terms the other is untethered living the digital nomad life in an uncertain world and nathan also hosts intrepidtimes.com a travel uh, a travel website meaning a travel stories website and no top 10 cocktail bars in barcelona <laughs> but maybe a story or two about getting too wasted in a cocktail bar in barcelona and it changes your life you know that's that's the the difference um any if any last thoughts you're welcome to add but i i appreciate that we could have a three-way conversation across i guess uh, three different countries thank you so much so, so lovely to meet you all and and um thanks for listening everybody it's been great this was a pleasure thank you so much tony and and andrew